This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Check them out at jewishjournal.com. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, israelnationalnews.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit 2njb.com slash donate. Israel was founded largely by a group of Russian Jews. Ben Gurion, Moshe Sharet, David Remez, the list goes on and on. They came to Israel in the end of the 1800s and early 1900s and were extremely influenced by Karl Marx and socialist ideas. The entire culture of Jewish society in mandatory Palestine was very socialist. If you wanted to be someone, you had to be a part of Mapai, Ben Gurion's Workers' Party. And if you wanted a job, you had to bear the party's famous or infamous red notebook. When Israel was founded, the socialist ideas of the founding fathers were the foundations for the country's entire infrastructure. Every 1st of May, the entire country celebrated International Workers' Day. And when Stalin passed in 1953, the newspapers mourned. Flash forward 75 years later, Israel in 2020 is a thriving country where innovation and merit are important values, but the country is more divided than ever when it comes to economic ideology, as most of the population thinks the country isn't social enough, while others call for the end of what remains of the socialist system. So is Israel a socialist country or a capitalist country? To clarify this question, we brought Dr. Ellie Cook straight from Haifa University. Ellie is an expert for the history of capitalism, and we're super thrilled to have him on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. How are you? I'm great. So let's start with the big question. Is Israel yeah. a socialist or is it capitalist? So, so first of all, I'm excited to talk about Israel. I'm actually a historian of American capitalism, so this is actually refreshing for me. I mean... There are people who would even question, historians, who would even question whether Israel was ever socialist uh, in many ways. They would argue, for instance, Arya Kramp has a book, and I think Zev Sternhal has made this argument, where really it was a nationalist view that kind of drove Ben-Gurion and those other kind of founders. And really, whenever there had to be like a choice between, let's say, socialist ideology and, you know, you know pragmatic national nation building they often chose kind of like the nation building attack what is the i mean how would you differentiate between that because isn't there a national element to socialism oh yeah I, I think that's a great i would say that you know i don't know how i mean there, there are a lot of different ways you can look at this but i think in many ways people would argue that you know uh, there's certain like kind of base core kind of ideas that weren't necessarily that you know prevalent in kind of early uh, israeli society um, I think, for instance, just the way the, the Histadrut kind of was created as this kind of, you know, uh, union on one hand, but almost like a state within a state on the other. It's, it's, it's very different from kind of like the social democratic uh, welfare model that, that you saw in, in other places. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I mean, certainly there are ways uh, that you could definitely make the argument, you know, if I would try to think what, what parts of Israel were in many ways were socialist. And, and I have to say, I do kind of lean more towards the line. I, I think there are similarities between socialism and nation building. And I do think there were certain aspects. So certainly if you look at, you know, the percentage of people who, you know, were part of this like union, uh, it, it was a large. And obviously the kibbutz is clearly something that mm -hmm. uh, has very kind of like uh, socialist undertones. On the other hand, uh, when we're talking about Israeli development, you have to mention the fact that you know there was always an influx of uh, urban jewish german 
Jews, for instance, which were coming with capital or, you know, investors from outside. So, you know, it wasn't always just there was always kind of like a bourgeois kind of urban. Uh, uh, again, I'm not an expert in Israel, but my sense is that, you know, even in the, before the state of Israel, I, I would agree that kind of like the socialist vision had the upper hand, but already there was kind of like this kind of, you know, mm-hmm. and, and also I think there's important just to remember, like just in, in general, like the general structure I mean, Israel is um, uh, before the state of Israel. It's a, essentially a colony of uh, of the Great uh, Great Britain, and therefore they, they have their own imperialist uh, capitalist, you know, goals. So, you know, the first banks here are going to be like, you know, these kind of, you know, Banks are very close to the city of London, so you do have these capitalist forces uh, that are, you know, clearly uh, have power and are, and are, you know, trying to drive certain, you know, elements of mm-hmm. the economy forward. Um, but all in all, I, I think I support the case that whatever it was, uh, I, I would argue that Israel didn't. Uh, I, I would argue today Israel is a capitalist country. I think uh-huh. that's uh, pretty obvious, actually. I, I don't think. Uh, okay. And I would say that Israel's kind of capitalist revolution. Uh, I think the standard story there is pretty much the 80s is kind of like the key uh, turning point. Uh, and then, you know, 90s and the 2000s really kind of like the takeoff. I think Netanyahu as a finance minister in the early 2000s marks in a very important moment where there were a lot of reforms that were done that kind of pushed it towards a, a capitalist society. And today I would say that Israel is is, is definitely a capitalist country. I mean, okay, so I, I, first of all, I want us to also talk a bit about America. So yeah, maybe we'll do right. that a little later. But uh Let's start at maybe at the at the at the basics with the basics. Yeah. What, what, how would you define socialism versus capitalism? Okay. Um. So I guess for me, one of the key aspects. Okay. First, I'll tell you what it's not. And that's I think, also, I guess, a broad question. Yeah. Because, like you said, you're an expert in American. Yeah. Capital, so I guess you no. would, you would argue that there are very different there are big is, differences between American capitalism and Israeli capitalism and. Yes, but on the other hand, these are questions that I deal with all the time because these are actually like, you know, these kind of definitional questions. And I would say, first of all, uh, I want to say what capitalism isn't and also what socialism is in many ways. I think there's this notion that markets equal capitalism. And I don't think that's true. I think there have been markets uh, for most of, uh, you know, for thousands of years in civilizations that I wouldn't define as capitalist. Uh, on the other hand, I actually think there are oftentimes could be markets in socialist societies. So I think this notion that, you know, markets equal capitalism is wrong. So what is capitalism? I would say, first of all, that capitalism usually means that, you know, the means of production, to use kind of like a Marxist term, or, you know, the, uh, the most sources of wealth that kind of create uh, other forms of wealth are held in private hands and are usually designed to be profit maximizing endeavors. So to use Israel as an example, for instance, uh, the kibbutz would not be a particularly capitalist enterprise. Until uh, they sold their business. Until they sold their businesses, yeah. exactly. Uh, and became millionaires. Uh, when Herzl, uh, the good kibbutz, yeah. the success, uh, when Herzl, you know, kind of had this image uh, that the land needed to be kind of uh, nationally owned and he didn't really want this kind of emergence of a kind of private real estate market. I think that's also kind of clearly not a capitalist vision. This is an idea that the first thing we need to do is chop Israel up into these private private, you know, uh, profit producing, uh, producing farms, you know, that's not the model. That was the model, for instance, America. America was born kind of one of the first kind of acts that occurs in the United States is uh, 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 selling off the land to kind of private farmers, things like that. But I I also think that uh, uh, in broader terms, I think that capitalism is often could be defined not only as kind of ownership of the means of production and private means, but also just the, the role that markets play in a society. So like, for instance, you can have a society with markets and then you can have a market society. It's a society where really, you know, almost everything is driven by markets, where people depend on markets to, to survive. You know, uh, if I have to sell my labor, you know, in a labor market in order to uh, earn a living, I, you know, I'm going to get basically all of my necessities through a market. Now there are, of course, you know, 
always exceptions. Uh, I think there are capitalist societies that have kind of these little islands of, uh, of socialism in them. It could be, you know, socialized medicine or it can be, you know, other things. But I would generally say that it's kind of, you know, having markets is like this centralized mm -hmm. dependent uh, that that's kind of key. And, 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 uh, and, and, and the profit motive is, is kind of... Those so, are the so, and what is socialism? Socialism is just the opposite? Is just having the uh, markets being owned by a centralized government? Or how um, would you define it? So there are different forms, I think, of, of, of socialism. You could have uh, like a very centralized kind of Soviet-style uh, uh, communism, so, which would indeed uh, kind of a totalitarian state, you know, owns everything kind of, kind of model. Uh, but you could also have kind of what I think uh, Israeli socialism was in some aspects, which is more of a cooperative socialism, where, you know, it's not the state necessarily that, you know, runs everything, but you have these cooperatives, whether it's Tnuva or it's the Kupat Cholim, the, the healthcare uh, cooperatives, or it's uh, or the Kibbutzim themselves, of course. In other words, so you could have kind of a society where uh, you have markets, you have these like non-state entities, uh, but these entities are not run uh, uh, by private individuals uh, or by they're not corporations, you know, for maximizing profits. Here we need to talk also about a very important part of capitalism, I think, which is the capital side of it. That's often lost. We mentioned markets, but, you know, for, in order to have capitalism, you also need to have capital. In other words, this notion that I'm going to invest this money in order to earn a return on my investment. Uh, so cooperatives usually don't work in that sense. You know, the uh, the they're not kind of like we're going to start open a corporation and just kind of, you know, have our shareholders and hire some CEOs and try to maximize our profits and then, you know, give dividends to the shareholders. But rather, we're going to have this idea that, you know, the workers themselves own the the company or maybe the consumers. You can have a consumer cooperative where the consumers own uh, uh, the that, that can also be an option. So so there's that kind of tact. And then I just say, lastly, there's a, a there's this idea, you know, uh, a social democracy or so this is kind of like the Bernie Sanders kind of, uh, which uh, clearly sees, uh, I think that's more of like a, kind of leans more towards this idea of a mixed economy where, you know, there are certain things that absolutely they feel should be left to the, uh, you know, private uh, uh sector i don't think bernie sanders wants to nationalize you know starbucks or mcdonald's yet uh, <laughs> no I, I i really don't think uh he, he certainly never talks in that in that language uh, but he, might, he might not want to nationalize them but he, he i think he might want to not i mean i don't think i don't until, i don't know well, i don't know if he would phrase it like this but he might want to cripple them out of existence i mean we can talk about ta taxes an important aspect too but i would just just to end this part i would say that social democracy you know basically says that there are certain key things that we should leave out of the market the market does not deal with them well and i would say that these are the ideas there are certain basic necessities uh that the, that we really shouldn't be using and you know this would be healthcare, education Housing even, I think, would be something that... Transportation. Uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, transportation. Uh, Everything important in life, essentially. I mean, it's a good question. Uh, I, I don't know why, if... You... Why not food? I mean, food is just as important as healthcare, if not more they important. They control some of the food. No, but I'm saying, why Why is healthcare more basic than food? So, I. it's a great question. I, I think one of the things that you look at when you look at kind of like the way a healthcare market works is that when somebody needs to get treatment, it's it's not like, you know, a piece of bread or an iPhone. It's very hard, you know, to kind of create, you know, this kind of model of a park market with price elasticities where somebody's like, oh, I'm not going to get that surgery if it costs $10. I'm only going to get it if it costs 5 Because, no, I need the surgery or I'm going to die. So basically... But the same is, I mean, if I go five days without food, I'll die. No, but there, but but uh, I think you know. In as far as like these services go, I think there's like you know a robust uh, uh, kind of uh, supply is easier for food than for surgeons. 
and, and I'll just say one more thing about the food thing. Not necessarily. I, I don't know a capitalist country which, uh, uh, which hasn't created some form of policy that, uh, that doesn't create a situation where it avoids the poor people from starving. So, for instance, food stamps is something that, like, uh, almost I can't think, I don't, I don't think there exists a capitalist society in history that didn't have some mode of saying, okay, even if you're really poor, and for whatever reason, uh, you, uh, you know, can't sell your labor in, in the labor market, uh, we, we're not going to let you starve to this. Yeah, but there's a difference between providing, like, you know, uh, giving care to the terminally ill or to the, uh, you know, people who are on the on the edge of death. I don't know if someone comes into an emergency room with a gunshot and needs immediate care. Then there's a difference between that and providing, let's say, health care for all, as we do here in Israel mm-hmm. um, and in every other major industrialized and, yeah. uh, country in the world. Well, in the United Except States, America, yeah, which has the highest health care. I mean, I mean, it's pretty clear, I think, that if you're going to make the argument that capitalism is better than socialism, and you can certainly make that argument, the worst place for you to go is healthcare. That is not the place to go. And clearly, that experiment. But I'm not has, sure has that failed. I'm not sure that like the healthcare. <laughs> I'm not sure that America can be kind of uh, lauded as the capitalist uh, manifestation of health. I mean, they spend twice as much as Israel publicly on healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, because so, the, the, so in a sense, it's like Israel is like if we're doing better, maybe it's because we're spending less publicly on healthcare. Like I think America spends about five, uh, four thousand. It's an extremely two hundred dollars per capita. The graph I always like to show is you have a graph of life expectancy versus healthcare yeah. costs, and it's just incredible. You know, most of the world, the democratized, industrialized world, West is kind of like pretty much in this kind of cluster of dots. And then suddenly you have this one crazy outlier and it's America who on one hand, people are spending a lot more on healthcare. On the other hand, they're actually living less. The, and actually it's pretty amazing that uh, last year for the first time since world war one, uh, life expectancy in America actually dropped. So, um, so in that sense, you know, clearly something's off. Uh, uh, but here's something is off too with the health care system. I, I think. First of all, you have problems. Every hospital has huge problems with vacancy. But you know, I recently Va- vacancy like uh, uh, like beds. Oh, the opposite of vacancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is yeah. No, 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 no. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and 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 then you know you pay, but when you actually need something, you either need to wait for months or to pay privately mm-hmm. to get the thing you need now. Yeah. And then, even if you do get a, a place to, to visit, like a, if, if you get to visit a doctor as part of your health insurance, turns out, I recently learned that it's very common to bribe the doctor in mm, cash. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to talk to, to talk to people about it and every, like, I, people told me, yeah, we, we just, you know, we sleep... Uh, thousand shekels to, wow. to the doctor yeah. and recently there were, there were stories even in, in the media and you don't even know how big this phenomenon is nobody knows it's like there's this status quo mm-hmm. of corruption and so I, I, I don't know why we got to talk about it now uh, but yeah. it's, it's I, I mean I'll, I'll just say that I think uh, uh, I agree with you actually that I don't think the Israeli healthcare system is uh, as, as good as it could be or should be uh, but I think that the main argument is actually that we've seen kind of like this kind of austerity, uh, uh, you know, lack of public funding. Israel uh, in general has done quite a radical talk about capitalist country. Uh, if you look at kind of like just OCD numbers, how much Israel spends on uh, public services. OECD. OECD, sorry. Uh, public services. Uh, we've seen quite, quite a turn to the right in Israel. Uh, pretty stunning, actually. Uh, 
uh, Israel kind of has moved far more to the right than uh, almost any other Western country in the world as far as, you know, spending on uh, on healthcare, on education, on things like that. So I would just say this is a simple case of, you know, uh, this isn't, uh, you know, it's not that socialism here would be the problem, but it's not enough socialism. You need to, you know, you need to spend so everybody would have access to uh, to great healthcare. But with, I mean... If we put healthcare aside, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if compared to other OECD countries, we've necessarily taken a turn to the right or not. Yes, that's what I'm saying. No, compared but I'm saying, to other OECD but I'm saying, countries, I mean, you look at the public spending here, and it's it grows from your. If you look no, at public it's, transportation, it's very low compared to other countries. No, but uh, again, I'm not sure compared to other countries. I don't the have the numbers public, in front of you, but, but if the you public look at transportation the, costs, the, con- the education trans- costs. No, the public transportation spending, for example, has increased like by hundreds of millions of shekels from year to year. Okay, so, um, you know, population grows. Uh, people, uh, uh, you know, so spending is usually going to go up. But um, uh, I don't think this is a point uh, that's worth arguing on because, you know, anyone can go just to a chart and see. Uh, if you remember Karnit Flug, for instance, she, she was the head of the Israel, Bank of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has been talking a long time. So you, there are all these numbers are thrown about. I don't want to bandy about certain numbers. But Google it. Uh, yeah, Google it. But, you know, she basically claimed, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the number now, but it's in the hundreds of millions of shekels uh, that basically public spending in Israel has kind of fallen behind uh, other Western countries uh, uh, due to kind of like this is basically goes back to we mentioned it the Netanyahu reforms of the early 2000s uh, kind of like a, but here, here's the thing first of all when you look at the OECD countries you have two problems problem number one some of these countries are not Western countries no okay? no like Mexico and Turkey it, they I you should you should leave them out it's ridiculous that they're, they're they're in the OECD in the first place but just so you know those are not the countries that okay. that are and spending then the more se- than and us. then the second problem <laughs> no that's generally that's a problem when you compare poverty right when you look at poverty never mind they compare More growth and gdp yeah no so. the, criti- the criticism of poverty which is actually a more interesting one is that the way oecd measures poverty is actually really it's an inequality measure it's not really a poverty right. measure that, right. that that's what uh, right they say we're more po- there are more poor people in israel than mexico right but in that, fact, it's ridiculous. That's just lies, uh, so, essentially. Yeah. So basically, there's a big argument uh, about how poverty should be measured. There are some people who think poverty is kind of like this. What's the word I'm looking for? Like a universal trait. You know, there's a certain very basic uh, uh, basket of objective goods, objective across you know any place. And if you, as long as you have that, you're not poor, right? Right. And then there's the other tact, and this is the tact the OECD went uh, went for, and. and I see that you're unhappy with this. And that is to kind of, I don't remember the exact calculation. I'm an historian, but basically what they do is they kind of look at the, uh, 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 what's the word, the median uh, 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 salary, which obviously takes, you know, inequality into account. And then I think they cut that by half and they say, whoever's under that line, they're, they're poor, uh, irrelevant to what you know, what it's their relative basic. poverty, right? And, and this gets you know studies uh, that show that you know poverty is oftentimes felt in a relative manner. So you know somebody in one country who's very you know surrounded by you know poor people but has a little bit more, he might feel wealthier. Right. But but whereas you know a kid without a uh, uh, smartphone in Israel might feel very poor. You know th- this is kind of like gets but to like my second problem with the comparisons to the OECD is you know it's very easy to be socialist when when you're a country that a uh, homogenous country. Okay. Right? Like in the Nordic countries yeah. or Germany, let's ignore the refugee problem for a second because now they're getting what's been coming for, for them for being socialist, in my opinion, because now someone is taking advantage of their socialism. But if we ignore that for a second, 
you s- it's very easy because everybody's participa- participating in the game, mm-hmm. right? So then, you know, as long as everybody's participating, it's bearable. Yeah. But here in Israel, mm-hmm. you, inv- you invest a lot. If you would compare the investment per capita of those who participate in the game... You, you, what, could you just mean what you mean by participate in the game? You mean work in, join the workforce or...? For example... Okay. Join the workforce. So you're talking about the Orthodox. Educate. You're educate. Talking about, you're edu- talking about the Orthodox mainly? Orthodox and some of Arab population. Uh, uh, actually, uh, it's interesting. Uh, labor participation in Arab, uh, even in Orthodox, it's actually gone up a lot. No, it's years. gone up, but but it's you, it's uncomparable to the non-Arab, non-Orthodox numbers. Still, because in Arab families, the main problem for our listeners, the main problem is Arab women who tend to know to go to work. And, and in Orthodox, the father goes to study and gets yeah. financed by... Mm-hmm. Our capitalist country. I've never <laughs> heard of a capitalist cap- country who pays people for go and study religion, and uh, and the, the 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 mother stays at home and takes care of the ch- ten or fifteen children, and then so so it's, there's a famous quote by Netany- not by Netanyahu who said it. I don't remember, but there's a famous without quote. the Arabs and yes, the Orthodox. Yes, were, yeah. uh, that without if you take out the Arabs and the or- Orthodox. Our economy is the, like one of the best in the world. And fact is, it's kind of true. Um, so, yeah, so these are really important points. So, first of all, I think one of the things that makes socialism easier in homo- homogenous countries is also just a sense of kind of like a certain solidarity amongst people. You know, I think definitely one of the reasons uh, America uh, became a fairly ver- fairly capitalist country is because there was always like Im- immigrants coming in. There was ethnic divides. Uh, there was the problem of uh, African Americans, uh, so you kind of like you know there was it was very hard to get everyone on board. You know, uh, rich people didn't want to pay their taxes if they thought that that money was going to go to like African American schools because that's like you know that's not part of who I am. That's not part of. So I, I definitely agree with you uh, that it's much harder to create uh, kind of solidarity uh, when there's like these uh, uh, divides. Um, I actually also agree that I think one of the bigger issues in Israel, and I'm saying this as someone from the left, is is the problems that you mentioned. I actually think that one of the reasons Israelis are uh, mostly, I think, and this is kind of getting to what I sense is your guys' ideology, uh, is, is a lot of Israelis have turned uh, more capitalist precisely because they look at the Israeli state and you say, how can I, you know, support higher taxes when it's going to go to the settlements or it's going to go to... Uh, this, the, like you were saying, the, 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 or, the, the orthodox. Yeah. orthodox. Um, uh, I don't think you could really say anymore that's going uh, uh, or ever that it was really going to the Arab. So no, I'll, for example, Bedouins. Uh, uh, Bedouins, there's a huge problem. They, they, some of them use the social system to get child support in immense numbers. So f- just for the anecdote. Uh, on the other hand, I think that you know. Uh, Social investment, government investment in these areas is, is is extremely low. I mean, if you go to any Bedouin, it changes town, now in some Arab cities. But uh, yeah, well, there's now a new plan, which is very interesting. We're talking about that. It's very interesting. Netanyahu and the Likud yeah, government, billion yeah, has decided investment. to invest in very interesting plan. Right. But um, so I would just say that 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 I agree with you. I think this is a major challenge, uh, and I think it creates a, a, a lot of problems because it also creates a situation where you know one of the things that uh, people like me and I think this kind of gets back to like uh, Bernie Sanders and other people it's like uh, we we think that the only way socialist kind of policies become popular is if they're universal everyone get, should get them even the rich should get them you know everyone should have access to to good health care everyone should have access to you know uh, free university uh that's a talking point now that you know has become a uh, so i think in that sense uh it's very very hard uh, to kind of 
build uh, that kind of society when what you, we've been seeing, and this has kind of been a tactic for a number of years in Israeli society, is instead of, you know, creating this kind of a universalized welfare state where everyone will get a piece of the pie, uh, it's like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, kind of what you're talking about with the payoffs to the doctors, only it's like, here are the payoffs to Shas, you know, the, the Sephardic uh, uh, ultra-Rexic, and then we're going to have this, uh, uh, the, uh, they're going to get, you know, their settlements, and they're going to get this, and they're going to get this, and, and I think that that creates a situation where, uh, I definitely understand the frustration that a lot of kind of, you know, Tel Aviv, you know, working in high tech uh, people, you know, they're like, uh, they've, they, you know, they, they, they work their ass off. Yeah. And they, and they're like, I, well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to give them the money to the state because I'm not going to get anything back. And I think that is, is, is a really, and by the way, this is actually interesting because there's a very big divide, I think, between kind of like the youth in Israel right now and the youth in the United States. Using the United States has yeah, kind of become a very socialist. Uh, right. Uh, and I think this they is... They just forgot how bad it was. <laughs> well, well, that's actually... They don't know history. If they all became cap- <laughs> historians of socialism and capitalism. Well, well I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if they studied in... Uh... <laughs> I'll say something about that because I uh, it's it's really one of kind of the mysteries where you know you look at now under thirty five in America why is why are they why do they kind of uh, like socialism more than capitalism and I think one of the points you made is actually true is that socialism for an older generation that's Stalin that's you know yeah. Russian totalitarianism like these kids they don't they don't know they 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 were born you know before after the Berlin Wall fell they don't really know that world for them if anything socialism is either something that they've never experienced or it's like something that they hear about in Sweden and Europe and they want it um, so that's but, one thing but this that's an issue. I mean, I feel like there's this the, it's a bit of a myth that the Nordic countries are socialist. I mean, there's a difference between socialist countries and sort of welfare programs within a greater capitalist. No, within a greater capitalist. I think I mean, the corporate tax rates in most of the Nordic countries are very, very low. They have uh, they have no minimum wage. They have, do, do you know, free what percentage. School. Do you know what percentage of workers are unionized in these countries? There's a reason they, they don't have a minimum wage, usually because we're talking about 80, 85 percent unionization rates, where the uh, what we have usually is this kind of corporatist system where, like, you know, these unions will uh, uh, collective bargain and uh, with, you know, certain with the state and sometimes with, you know, with the private sectors, this kind of triangle. And then that'll set kind of like uh, the wage rate. And uh, for many reasons, but that the, doesn't change the fact that they don't have a minimum wage. Which uh, is no, a very, I mean, no, most by the way, socialist but countries just, would. That's only one model of socialism. Just so you know, a lot of unions uh, don't like the idea of a minimum wage because then, you know, who, who are you going to credit with uh, with uh, the fact that you got a raise? Are you going to credit the union that you're paying your dues to? Or now you're going to credit the state? A lot of unions feel like, you know, uh, this, it's, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. And then you have countries countries like Norway, which they nationalized their oil. And it, it's general, if you look at public capital. Yeah, but Sweden privatized many of its national, uh, the, the train system, the uh, many of the natural resources. I think they, they privatized a lot. So I'm not sure that this this idea that the Nordic countries are totally right. socialist is completely Venezuela accurate. is more of a good example. <laughs> I mean, these are kind of right-wing talking points. I don't really feel like, uh, okay. uh, but I think that w- whenever people talk about social democracy, it's like I talked about before. It's not this idea of kind of like, you know, everything will be nationalized but it's a few kind of and and i think if you look at the public spending in these countries and if you look at the level of just like uh uh, things that you know the market kind of doesn't uh 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 kind of eat eat uh it's 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 quite large but just to get back one more thing about uh the thing about someone like bernie sanders and why he's popular another reason is because if you look at the united states after you know uh uh world war ii from 1945 to around 1975 i mean 
Do you know what the top marginal tax rate was in these years? 70%. That was actually after they dropped it. At first, it was like even 90, 90%. 90%. Yeah. So like, you know, and these were years where growth was very high and, you know, it was, you know, pretty much being divided equally. And uh, also, you know, if you look at that generation, you know, most people got uh, uh, went to university for free because there was a GI Bill and pretty much everybody who went to the army, uh, pretty much every American citizen went to the army. So there was sort of like this free university. You had massive, you know, uh, subsidies. Uh, this was mostly for white people uh, for uh, mortgages. You know, pretty much you could say that from 1940s, 1970s, the United States essentially kind of basically in many ways, like almost I'm like, they didn't nationalize, but they like heavily, heavily, heavily uh, the state could, took control of a. Uh, uh, um, uh, mortgages and kind of housing and, and that kind of thing. There, there are other aspects. And I think in many ways, uh, and this is, you know, Noam Chomsky, you know, this leftist, when he talks to Bernie, he talks about Bernie Sanders, he's like, oh, he's not really a socialist. He's a, he's a New Deal liberal. He's a, he's a uh, <laughs> I think, I think okay. Noam Chomsky takes, his, uh, takes it as an offense if anybody else is called a socialist. Oh, uh, maybe. But I think, <laughs> I think uh, if you look, for instance, at kind of like the policies that are driving uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign, in general, just kind of, uh, reinvigoration of the left. I think you'll find that you know uh, it's usually kind of things that actually there is a precedent in the United in American history uh, that 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 you can lean on. But there's, so. a, I mean, there there is the argument that the post-war era was very much influenced by a post-war boom. I mean, the war you know just boosted the economy. I mean, the production was at all times high, so many people were kind of riding that wave. And I'm not sure that necessarily the for 30 high years. tax rates uh, 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 the wave was 30 years it's not just the war yeah but it's, i mean it's, you the, can, it's can the social you, infrastructure you that came after it it's the fact that they created but the you know, state the, the united states today i don't think can be compared to the united states in the 1950s i mean 1960s. if you look at inequality rates you're absolutely right my god i agree with you on that one <laughs> i mean yeah but what's let's talk about inequality what's wrong with inequality um okay so I think uh, there are a few things that are kind of that inequality causes problems. Uh, first of all, it causes a problem for democracy. Uh, if you have some people who are very rich and very powerful and have a lot of money, then they can oftentimes, you know, influence the, the political process. Uh, there's this great, great uh, study from Princeton University a few years ago. I recommend people to read it. Uh, I forget the title. They gave it kind of like a sexy title as Is America Plutocracy or something. And what these guys did is they did a very kind of empirical analysis and they showed that I think something like in 90 percent of the occasions, all of the economic or socially economic uh, laws that have been passed in the United States in about the 20, 20, last 20 years, uh, have benefited uh, the, the 1%. In other words, you, we basically created a political process in the United States because of campaign finance, because of the fact that half the senators are millionaires, because of inequality, because you know there's some people who just have so much more uh, power uh, economically than other people. Uh, you've created a situation where they can kind of rig, the system kind of, kind of is rigged. And that's what Americans really feel. And I think that also explains the rise of Trump. It's not just the thing on the left. I think also times very much Americans on the populist right feel this. And so, so that, that's kind of one issue. Uh, another one, you can just talk about basic questions of justice. You know, should somebody who works, you know, their ass off, the, the problem of the working poor in the United States. You know, the United States is not usually a country where the problems are, you know, this kind of myth of uh, the welfare queen is like, that's not the problem. Usually the problem is uh, people who are working uh, uh, full time, sometimes even two jobs and still can't make ends meet because, you know, minimum wage hasn't been uh, uh, the minimum wage hasn't risen and has actually dropped because of inflation the last 20 years. Why is that? Oh, because, you know, there's like very powerful corporations who make sure that, you know, the federal minimum wage doesn't go up. So, you know, I mean, so there's questions of just kind of like justice. And then the other thing is just like just basic, you know, uh, 
I mean, I'm sure you've guys seen stories of people going on GoFundMe to like get their insulin or just the prices of medicine, the student debt problems, the fact that no one like the housing problems. I mean, but these I mean, these are very anecdotal. I mean, the anecdotal. Idea, yeah. The idea that that the United States has a the top one percent and it's static. I mean, 12 percent of Americans are in the one percent at some point in their lives. And what's more staggering than that is that I think something like 70 percent of Americans are within the top 20 percent sometime in their lives, meaning there's this idea that it's just the 1% and the bottom 99%. I mean, there's income mobility. Uh, America really is the land of opportunity. Okay, I mean, so, there's, there's uh, tons of movement. I, I really suggest you look at the, the newest data on social mobility. The New York Times, you can Google this, had a great article about how social mobility in China now is higher than the United States. There are these really interesting graphs that you can see about inequality on one uh, uh, side of the graph. And... Um, uh, social mobility on the other and basically they show that the higher the inequality is in a society almost always uh, the social mobility uh, is lower actually Israel is a really interesting case uh, Israel has high inequality but actually fairly high uh, also social mobility so that's something that's interesting but the United States is not in that but case. I don't I don't know how they how they measure social mobility but this isn't this is a, like income I mean this is the Congressional Budget Office these are De this is data I, I, of I'm referring also to these, uh, you know, official statistics of uh, the chances today of, I mean, the, the, the things are staggering. I mean, do you know that you can kind of pretty much predict someone's income in the United States on a very, very precise, just from the zip code? You know, the notion that America is the land of opportunity like it used to be in the early 20th century when the Jews came and kind of made their jump to the middle class, which, by the way, if you look at the history of Jews in America, a lot of them made their jump to the middle class. Thanks to New Deal, there's a reason all the Jew most of the Jews in the United States uh, voted for the Democratic Party. They got a lot out of that Democratic Party and Roosevelt. So, like, you know, so in that sense, if you look at just, you know, what's happening in the last few generations. Uh, another chart I really like to show is number of Americans who are going to earn more than their parents. Uh, so in the last generation, it was 90%. 90% of Americans, I think, in like the 60s and 70s were going to make more than their parents. That is down now to less than half. Less so, than No, that's not true. Yeah, yeah. 84% of Americans, I think, was the statistic that I read, are making more than their parents. Uh, so it's funny how you know it's interesting. This this actually it shows. depends if you read it in the New York Times yeah, or in the it, Wall Street uh, Journal. Yeah, uh, well, actually, I think the Wall Street Journal is pretty they, open to okay. issues of in, you inequality. You get my point, though. I mean, <laughs> I think today the arguments over inequality are more questions of you know how. I, I I think the argument you're having is an argument that's a little you know people were having this argument maybe 10, 15 years ago. I'm just talking about kind of mainstream. Now I think people have more moved to questions of like. Okay, we actually do think we have an inequality problem. Now, how do how, how do how do we fix I, it? I'm less, I mean, even Warren Buffett, you know, is saying that like, you know. He, but I mean, the the idea that the, I I think that this is it's predicated on the idea that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. But I don't see any evidence to that. I mean, the United uh, States <laughs> is doing extremely well. People in the United States, I mean, yeah, there was the recession and people took a hard hit and the poor took the hardest hit because that is always the case, right? I mean, if you're rich, you're not going to take a hard hit because you have tons of money. But but in general, over in the United States, the rich are getting richer, yes, but the poor are getting richer, too. I, I really encourage anyone who's interested to look at, you know, the latest inequality figures. Uh, Thomas Piketty has and other uh, economists. Uh, there's a, what's called the World Income Database now. I'll just tell you one graph. If you look at the graph of the United States, pretty much uh, what you can say about the poor it. Uh, the, the very poor actually have gotten poorer, the, low, the lowest decile. But what you could say about the uh, about 50% of Americans, the middle class, they haven't gotten poorer. 
but wages have stagnated. Uh, the average, the median American family uh, makes exactly now what they made uh, almost 50 years ago, whereas the top 1%, their uh, income has skyrocketed. So I, and, and that's really, really just kind of like a... But I th uh, I'm, I'm not as fluent as, as you guys in, in the statistics about America. I'm more fluent in Israel. But yeah. I, what interests me is a kid in America who's born in a rough neighborhood, but let's say he has access to the internet, okay, and he's smart, he, I mean, what prevents him from, let's say, Making his way studying out. programming from the internet and, and start working in programming and work his way up? What prevents it? Like, so, it, so, can so, he do that? So, if the answer is yes, so what do I care if, the, if they are poor or they aren't poor? As long as I know that those who want can use... So, so first of all, empirically, we know that that's not happening. So are you saying that all the people in America who don't do that are just lazy or stupid? Because empirically, if, that's not happening. Uh, well, I just, think, oh, if they just went I on the think, internet and you know I think, were more entrepreneurial. I think uh, what makes the difference. Do you know is, the, the, is, the level of differences in public high schools in America because the, the funding of schools is you know based on property taxes, local property taxes. But if do you know the child, difference between if, a suburban white public school and a private, you know, uh, inner city? But in the age of the internet, what does it matter? What does it matter if a child is wow. smart and if the family, if the family? wants the kid to excel. I mean, education the, the, the has family, value. Edu the family wait, where the mother is working one, one two jobs, education, maybe. So what? Education for values, like, uh, education has a value. For You can see it very well here in Israel. You have families, I know families, right, who came from country, like, really uh, shithole countries, like Trump said, right? <laughs> families came from shithole countries with no education, but the parents, although they never studied beyond fourth grade, they valued education and they're sent and they, they pushed their kids to excel and the kids became success stories. Uh, I can name names even, okay? So if a family has these values and those values can come from anywhere, what's to prevent the kid from, from excelling with internet, for example? I mean, I think studies show that, for instance, one of the things that you need other than just like physical access to Internet, which, by the way, I don't think is actually a, a, a given, but also is that, you know, you, know, you need to you need to learn uh, basic reading skills. You need to learn how to look for things on the Internet. You know, this, these are skills that, that need to be acquired. And usually, you know, public schooling and other forms of public schooling and also, you know, having your parents at home in the afternoon to help you with your homework. These are pretty, pretty basic things. Look, I think um, there's a core argument uh, between the left and the right which is about, you know, what kind of, you know, role society plays. And the right will tend to usually individualize things. You know, they'll usually kind of, you know, if someone's rich, that, more than not, that is because they worked harder or they were smarter or they, you know, you know, learned uh, programming on the Internet all by themselves, even if they were an African-American kid in the ghetto. Uh, whereas I think uh, people more on the left side of the spectrum will say that, you know, you know, social uh, 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 context really, really matters. You know, uh, the amount, the, the level of funding that you have at your school, the level of, of violence you have outside, uh, the, how many hours your parents can be with you. And, uh, and, and I think oftentimes these cultural values that you're referring to, I think people uh, like me will say that these are, you know, not something that someone is just born with, you know, like genetically. And it's not necessarily something that they just, you know, their parents give them. It's, it's you know, a certain kind of social context that they're born in. And I think, again, to, to go back to my uh, example, I think there are ev pretty con concrete evidence that, uh, you know, the zip code that you're born in in America has an enormous influence of uh, where, how you're going to be when you, when you grow up. And so uh, if, if you 
if you're what you're what you're saying uh, on your side, then you're basically saying that whoever made it, uh, you know, the fact that you know most of the people who make it are from like you know affluent white suburbs. That's not because they're from affluent white suburbs. That's because it's because of their values. Yeah, because uh, education is more. Because uh, let me ask you one last question on that subject. Yeah, sure. Who's more responsible, in your opinion, generally for the kids? values and education aspirations the parents or the state because if the answer is the parents you know what I'm saying uh, so just I'll give you an example that kind of I think will answer that but okay. like for instance there are, I think there are really interesting studies that show that you know class you know where kind of where you're born kind of like rich or poor it has en- there's enormous amounts of uh, Uh, evidence that shows that like things like a sense of entitlement plays a very large role so for instance if you're uh, trying to grow up in a suburban uh, uh, affluent household and you know I don't know your kid has a problem with the teacher right you grew up in this kind of privileged world where you know you've had you have some social power you know you're not afraid you're gonna go into that classroom and you're gonna tell that teacher you know that she needs to you know uh, treat your son better or she needs to do this because this you know this is a certain you know sense of entitlement whereas I think there are a lot of studies that show that like you know poor people uh, who, who just they, they just don't feel like they kind of deserve that attention or they don't feel like they they're not gonna push they're not gonna demand those things so so this is just one small example of I think but it shows that like this thing that you're calling a, 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 a values is actually something that I would argue you know is very much influenced by you know the culture that your parents kind of were born with and, and But things like a kid that. is born who is mainly responsible to push him to excel is it the system the state or the parents I mean, who is more responsible I mean I, I think for the in, kids future I think in the United States you oftentimes see situations where it, uh, no, in your opinion who should be responsible oh well I, I definitely I, so I, I actually definitely think that you know parents and teachers parents and the state you know they so both 5050 it's not it but even the parents though where I th- think that the parents period that's mm. I, th- I think that's a good question to to measure the differences yeah because I think only the parents are responsible for the kids like I, I, I think that the, 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 the kind of leaning on this issue as responsibility is an interesting one but I, I think the way you know I can tend to think is like even the parents you know where does this uh, you know do they have the hours in the day to spend with their kids where does this responsibility come from do the kids have you know examples do the parents so for instance another thing that I think you see a lot with uh, with in kind of like you know poor uh, communities in the United States is that you know the kids who are really smart, Uh, they're going to be a lot of them you know you saw this in shows like the wire it's like the place where they can be entrepreneurial the place where they can really make it is actually you know as drug dealers you know th- there's a great uh, you know studies about how you know uh, it, it, those were the, those are the smart kids which are, had they been born in other kind of like you know uh, context uh, they, they may you know maybe they would have been the next uh, Elon Musk or something but uh, uh, and super entrepreneurial super smart but the context in this they were living like the the hand that they were dealt the the options I don't know how much in that sense you know there are structural issues that At play here from so so you're saying state but I'm saying more that like uh, uh, there, there's like and, and the parents are also like you know part of this kind of structural issue so you know so to expect parents out of just to fall from heaven they're not they're also they you also used to be kids they also have parents so right. there's also like this kind of you know yes uh, so there's this kind of like lineage know, uh, so I mean uh, I, I will say about social mobility but you can break it I, th- I think and you see it in Israel very well I you think... see that do- like p- some people came from the families that didn't value those things but but because the kids suffered or saw poverty he decided that he'll break this this line of, of so I'm just curious in, in your world with this thing on value can you instill these values in these people or is it something just either you got it or you don't I like if you can if you can adapt. The parents or the kids uh, no so let's say you have parents who you feel 
aren't instilling these values into their children yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah, I think yeah, I think a child can change that. He can acquire it from elsewhere. Oh, he can acquire it from elsewhere. Yeah. Oh, so you're so you don't need to lean on the parents. No, the parents are responsible. They're responsible for the for the kid. But the kid what does is that responsible mean? Responsible for himself. Responsible. Ah. It mean, Responsible for himself. No. The kid, when he grows up, after he's 18, he becomes responsible in his life. And if, he's, if he has access to the internet, for example... He, All he, he needs can... is Wi-Fi. <laughs> and if he's, you know, he can just learn how to Look, program. And that's it. You see it, actually. He, you he might see, have 7th grade example, level English or has trouble example, reading or has trouble doing basic you, math. But you can just, you know, start programming, you know, no problem. And anyone Pal who doesn't is just, you know, lazy. You see in Palestinian <laughs> cities, okay, you see young people. They see on the internet what's Tel Aviv like, right? What's Israel is like. And then some of them think and they say, why, why is it that we don't have that? You can break those, but I think the parents are responsible. So back to your question. No, I, I think, so, so, so would you think it's important to instill these values in uh, these people who, for some reason, do not have it? Because you, you're, you're basically, you're, you know, you're saying they don't have it. Instill you're, how? I'm, I'm asking you. Otherwise, what can I you do? I think the idea is like does, does I don't care. I, I don't. I, no one should in. do anything. Either, either, either it's important to you or it isn't. Okay. Okay. So, so people so, who don't have these values, uh, they should. You either you either got it or you don't. Yeah. And yeah. And and eventually, I think those who don't either got it or you don't. You the the parents educate hopefully with the but what right if they values. don't? If they don't, then it's their problem. I it's the, I, no, I believe no. No, but I the kid. He's the asking kid, what happens to a kid yeah. who's been educated badly. Yeah, exactly. And, Thank you. And the parents are responsible, well, Sababa. But the kid, a grown the kid, hold on, that. hold on. The kid in your uh, in your uh, situation is technically not responsible because he was born into this shitty household, right? And now he is a bad person. Right, he does okay. bad things. Okay. So who is it? Who is now responsible? So I don't think that that's. I don't think that's how I would see the world, and I don't think that that's how Noor. I'm not going to speak in your name, but I don't. I think the idea is that there is inherent good in people and an inherent ability to think, and it might be tough if you're born into a bad household. Not impossible. But the idea is that that. Everybody is responsible for themselves, even later on in life after they've been educated poorly. But first and foremost, it starts in the house. Wait, so you might but, have but a you harder you, way that, to dig yourself kind of, out. I liked it, but that was kind of a cop out at the end. So you're saying, okay, <laughs> all right. So you were you grew up in a shitty house, as you said. You didn't, you know, your parents uh, didn't instill in you these these values. Now you grew up, you're an adult. You don't have these values. Uh, tough shit. That's basically what you said because yeah. You should you should still be responsible for yourself, even though you yeah. didn't get it. Of course. No. So first of all, I think that there's a wider. Uh, you should somehow be a, able to they, transcend. There's these there's these uh, centric. Uh, what are they called? The uh, no. Uh, anyway, there's the, like there's circles, right? So the the clo the most concentric circle is your family, yeah. and obviously that's where you get most of your values. But you can look outside of that inner circle for values. What I so the wider. The wider culture, America, also instills values. And I, you can look to that culture for values. It, it's really interesting because usually the people I argue with are, are economists. Uh, and you guys are We're way... no economists. You guys are way more to the right than economists. Because the standard uh, kind of argument right now with economists is this thing called human capital, basically. There's this idea called human capital. And, you know, if you invest... If, if you know... 
people are invested in this human capital. Now, I guess you could say there are really right-wing economists who say, you know, investing in human capital is all about personal choice, but that's pretty rare now. Most people would argue now that the way that people like, you know, basically get human capital is through education and skills. And therefore, kind of the standard argument right now in economy in economics is like, if you want to have like a high productivity society, the government should actually, you know, uh, these are capitalist arguments, not, you know. So even the right-wing economists went left. I mean, essentially, <laughs> that's I, only I, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about like things like, you know, school choice where the government should give vouchers. That, that, that's something else. But definitely uh, the idea is that it's not values. It's not something that's just born. It's not something you get from your parents. There's like, you know, very concrete skills and and uh things that you need to learn this human capital idea and basically that is kind of essentially what determines uh, your productivity as an adult and your productivity reflects your wages now it's funny usually those are the people i'm arguing with because i have all you know i'm i'm take another tack which i say that while that is sometimes true oftentimes you actually see that uh this kind of these idea of the human capital but but what you guys are arguing is actually something way more to the right than that uh it's a it's a it's a conservative uh uh, kind of like more, uh, uh, I guess, uh, family values, personal responsibility. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think the word you're looking for is primitive. No, 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 not at all. Um, no, I think it's just not. It's not. I'm trying to. Th- I'm trying to relay it. It's not to, like in the oh, mainstream today. Uh, which no, I think. I think, yeah, I think there's a certain. It's funny. I would. That's you know, the, I was just trying to think of. I was thinking of Trump, or I was thinking of kind of like the the conservative party today. And even that, I don't hear those arguments. Sometimes these these do. arguments, I know. I can tell you that for me, they come from a very. You know, it comes. That's how I was grown up. These are the values I was taught, and these values come from families that had nothing. They came from nothing. And there is no reason why they would have these values, Mm -hmm. these families from my father's side. There is no reason. They came from nothingness, really. But still they had it. And many Jews did, actually. That's interesting because Mm -hmm. Jews uh, tend in Europe, but not only in Europe, tend to have these values from a long time ago. And this is why we excelled, I think, because we had these values that you're responsible to educate your children. And and it, it proved itself. I think. Let's go back to Israel for a second, yeah. to the initial question, yeah. because here's what I want to ask you. How could, can you say that Israel is capitalist when? Let's do a little list, <laughs> All okay? Right. Let's do it. The state controls the following, okay? okay. Go. The education system. Uh, I can't think of it. I'll list it and then you'll... Go for it. Okay, I think they control no, they fully or, or... Absolutely. No, he's saying I can't think of any Western developed yeah. country okay. that doesn't so, But, here's, but here's, the, here's the list. Education system, health system, yep. public transportation system, yep. the land... Uh, public transportation, I'll give you half a point. We've okay. had some privatization, privatization. But even Local, the privatization... Localized monopolies. Uh, it's ugly. Uh, there is no free... Okay. It depends what you think of the BOT. Do you guys know what that is? Uh, yeah, build, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, transfer, the Kvishesh. Uh, uh, so that's kind of like... Right. Let's call that semi-capitalist. But they, con- <laughs> uh, but they control the, most of the bus system and, and the train systems. Okay. Not infrastructure. Public transportation. Public transportation. So uh, oh, oh, okay. Is okay, okay. And yeah. uh, uh, the land, the entire land... In Israel, like the the actual land. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, well, ah, the food, the food and, and diary markets. Most of the basic food in Israel is, is controlled. Boy, do you know? Do you know the joke about how uh, there's the guy, the Jewish guy who uh, he loves reading the biggest anti-Semitic uh, uh, um, 
uh, journals because if someone comes to me, it's like, why are you reading that trash? He's like, are you kidding? When I read this, you know, it makes it sound like the Jews run everything. We were so as, a, as someone of the left, it's like hearing you, it's like, oh, it's great. <laughs> it and the like cherry at the top we is won. that <laughs> most of the employees, like the biggest employer in Israel is the state. Uh I actually, it's funny, you know, I think... So how is that you know a capitalist the, country? You know what? Uh, I, am, <laughs> I am on board with what you say. Okay. Which means, you know, the fantastic growth that's been happening in Israel all these years, that's not because of Maybe capitalism. Maybe it's just a taste of what it could have been. <laughs> actually, it's interesting. Yossi uh, Zaira, um, uh, who is a very interesting economist, uh, he actually traces the history of economic growth in Israel. He says that Israel actually, by 1972, had made it into, like, the Western world of, uh, of growth. Uh, but look... Uh, first of all, the land one—that's uh, a tough one. I mean, uh, you're—I mean, uh, you're right that in Who owns some most of the land in Israel, Israel owns it. I, I think I think uh, if you look at kind of like when Israel, when the finance minister wants to uh, solve the problem of the housing crisis in Israel, and I think we agree that there's somewhat of a housing crisis in Israel, right? Is his solution public housing? Let's have the government build lots of housing. By the way, they did it in the '90s when the Russians came, but yeah. is that his solution? Absolutely not. He kind of tries sort to create. A lottery, no. a lottery to uh, that, give young couples that wasn't public uh, subsidized couples. That, that, that wasn't was, public housing. No. Subsidized housing. Right, What's subsidized. the difference between subsidized well, housing? And just you know, I hated that program. I thought it was terrible. Uh, but uh, in general, I would say that uh, uh, I, if the worst is when people you know get an apartment, <laughs> and you're like, I hate the program. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> no, no. But even the people, from what I understood, most people who got won that lottery, which I think. In general, creating a social policy based on a lottery, I think, yeah. my girlfriend's sister owns a house now, oh, thanks nice. to one of those. But, programs. but is it true and or not that she bought it more as like investment? She wasn't really no, planning no, no, to move. They live oh, there. Yeah. They good live there. Her. She got a good one. There. And it's a beautiful it? home, nice. and they're really happy. And like, I'm really and happy for, for them. It, but so. I'm like, I'm so I hate everything. <laughs> what, what were the odds? I'm curious. Like one out of ten? Well, do I don't you know. Actually, I don't know. Either. No, there were good odds if you went to the less popular. Oh yeah, but then you're like stuck in. Yeah, you're. So you were saying. Anyway, I'm saying that like I think for me, I actually think that like the real estate market in Israel is like inherently capitalist and this gets back to our definition of capitalism because basically when the government says we need to build more they kind of look around and it's like okay how can we create incentives for private developers right uh, so that they'll build more and then they're like okay let's give them tax cuts or well, let's do this or this I think what what you're referring to though is something else that I think you have this imagine pure capitalism free market where like the government does nothing and and that i sad to tell you has really not existed at all in any moment in the history of society now you could say let's do it utopianism that's cool but it would be very hard for one of the reasons being also that you know there's a lot of things that the state does that capitalists actually really want them to do but that's getting to another discussion but i i would say that in general you know the fact that there's like you know zoning laws and what you were talking about how you know like a lot of the land is owned by israel and then they decide if they're going to sell it off in chunks or not going to sell it off how are they going to sell it off and things like that uh i mean surely the state uh, has its finger i guess you could say uh in all of these things uh but i would she say she owns that, the land no 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 that what, what do you it. mean? It. it, it people, people don't own homes in Israel? They do, but most of the land, free land, unbuilt land in Israel is owned by the state. Okay. Well, okay. So, yeah. so, so first of all, that, 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 that's, it depends kind of how you de define land. Like most of the land that's being used in Israel now, you could say that there's land that's being used for agriculture that this government won't let you turn that into, you know, high-rise housing. They could. They, they could. But they don't. Right. Upzoning, yeah. things like that, which, by the way, I'm all for. But, um, but, but those agricultural lands, I think 
you can't say that they're really owned by the government. Usually there's somebody who owns that, but they're just limited in the things that they can do. If you're talking about like the desert, is that what you're talking about? Is you're giving some kind of tricky statistic here where the desert is owned? Yeah, but no one wants to live 99%. in the desert. 99%. Wait, so, okay, let's try uh, Let's try and uh, and draw some lines. Let's kind of, to, to finish, because we do have to finish I, up. Yeah, yeah. So just about the so, real estate, I think yeah. it's a great point. I mean, just, I mean, just look, look at, look at, you know, I, I don't know many people who live in homes that are public housing owned by the government that rents it out. That's not exactly the model. Like, First of all, interesting fact is that most of the thi- the land, the housing, you think it's yours and it's private. Actually, if you look in the papers, the, you'll yeah, see it's rented. Symbolic. It, yeah, it, exactly. Mm. That's symbolic. No, 99% of the time, the government is not taking people's houses away. Property rights in Israel. Meaning tomorrow, maybe they could. Maybe, they could. But they haven't for it's the past the, 70 years. True. Thank you. Sababa. So wait. Okay. So I want to I wanna ask. Because uh, I was still kind of with you on this. The, the, the <laughs> Israel's, in my eyes, probably too socialist. In your eyes, probably too capitalist. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, if I had to draw lines, I would say, okay, I, today is the budget, the defense budget is like, I don't know what, like 10% of the year annual budget or something like that. 20%. Oh, of GDP. I think maybe, uh, you know what? I don't remember. It's the highest budget. Super high. Super high. I don't think it's high enough. I mean, I don't think it's high enough and I don't think it's high enough percentage wise. So that's what I'm saying. If I had to draw a line, I would say, let's say defense should be 50 and then 50 for the rest. Wait, of, and oh, I'm not saying of the current. I'm saying that like, wait, I'm not saying we should, okay. we should grow the should defense budget everything? to be then, 50. I'm saying we should cut most of the things and I don't think it should happen tomorrow. I no. think it should definitely happen over decades because it takes time. And to, like, if we did it tomorrow, millions of people would die. <laughs> but no, seriously, but, but I'm saying like, we should gradually work towards a place where defense is you know grows naturally at the current rate maybe a little faster but 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 occupies 50 percent of the budget so where are the lines like how much do are we spending today and where do you think we should yeah. be okay that so this is good so uh two things on that first of all i think we need to talk about first of all the budget but then you need to talk about what is the percentage of the budget of the total economy of the gdp and just to kind of like put like a feather into my Israel is becoming more capitalist and not more socialist hat. I'll just say that like, you know, you know, Israel used to be in this sense, you know, uh, in the entire economy was almost run in some way. I think 80% of the economy was like in some form or another run by the government. And I think now that's like super, and you see that in almost, you know, and if you just look at the Netanyahu reforms, you know, think, uh, first of all, the wave of privatizations that has taken place since the sixties, really. And until today, you know, you're upset, you know, that some things are still owned by the government. The government used to own a lot more. I can tell you that. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, you know, if you look at like you know things like you know where our pensions are and where they used to be you know pensions in israel until like the early 2000s were pretty much you had these kind of you know subsidized uh israeli bonds that you were promised a certain amount of return and that's basically where all the money went in other words you were pretty much loaning your money back to the government and then you know pretty uh now we have this kind of like compared to like a for American, like a 401k revolution similar mm-hmm. to that in America, where most Israelis now their pensions are in, you know, capital global markets, you know, that are run by these giant uh, uh, investment banks. So, like, that's another Let's way. Let's compete. Uh, it, now, to give about the um, about the military... It, no, it, kind of not, it doesn't have to be around the military. No, no. I'm saying your vision for kind of, like, the state's involvement in, in the economy, in Israel's so, economy. So, so first, I'll, I'll say that um, my, my sense, actually, is that, and this is not usually something that, you know, I'm, I definitely think that we could uh, cut the military budget significantly. My, my, my sense is that we should have, Israel as a country should have kind of adjusted 
to the geopolitical changes that occurred that I don't really think, you know, we're in a situation now where we're fighting these kind of Cold War proxy wars. That's pretty much what they were, you know, 67, 73. We're having like basically these big nation states with tanks, five of them at once, you know, collapsing upon us. And I think, you know, the Arab countries around us are... Uh, are both uh, inherently weak, and I think just the situation has completely changed since, you know, the Russian uh, Cold War proxy. And I just don't think we need, you know, so uh, it, it's funny, actually, because now I'm being like the capitalist. I think there's a ton of <laughs> fat we can we can cut uh, 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 from the army. Uh, I, of course, would say, you know, let's transfer that <laughs> it's into... Like, like, it's like literally we think opposite on everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, no, that's that's interesting. Although that is very, that that's definitely, you know, like a, a trademark of, you know... Um, so people think Reagan, for instance, in the United States in the 80s, you know, he was like this, you know, capitalist, you know, uh, you know, spending went up like crazy under Reagan. Uh, he cut taxes, but he didn't cut spending. And of course, the deficit grew like crazy. And 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 he was definitely, you know, you know, Star Wars programs, military spending. Uh, so, and, and, I mean, it's definitely consistent, I think, with what I'm getting a sense. It's kind of like a conservative worldview. So I get, uh, but I, so yeah, I guess <laughs> here too, we'll have to disagree. I will say this though. I do think that, um, as much as I like to complain about the policy uh, in Israel and I don't think it does enough and spending, it is in some ways unfair to compare Israel to other Western countries because we have this kind of thing on our back of, of this budget spending that goes to the military, which is just enormous compared to other countries, right? I mean, the fact in some ways you can and the orthodox it's another oh yeah all right sure yeah yeah these uh, are two bumps well, i mean come, the u.s defense budget is like a pretty hefty portion of the oh, annual but if budget. you look at I, I mean i don't want to google this now because that's bad podcasting but if if someone wants to look at uh, uh i mean as far as in general the spending that they spend of course but if you look at the percentage of gdp that israel spends compared mm. to the percentage of america oh israel is much more higher yeah. much higher i think israel might have the highest defense spending per gdp in the world Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so in that sense, I mean, it, but it's, it's, it, that, that's like, you know, you got a monkey on your back and, and in that sense, you know, in many ways, uh, it's, it, it's like, bur you're saying it's like burdening economic growth. Sure. I mean, yeah. I think, I think, uh, I would say that the, the, uh, the, the uh, I mean, cause the more secure people feel meaning defense, also, the high tech scene comes from the like military. Security. Uh, that, that's an interesting point. That's also, actually a very uh, socialist argument. I like that. You know, but innovation comes from government spending. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, with, but out of necessity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's as like, long as someone's so Jewish, nobody. <laughs> we all want to get the last. This this episode's never gonna end. Oh my god. That's fine. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll shut up. This was great. I enjoyed. <laughs> okay. Um, you have books to plug. Oh, right? books. Uh, I mean, in English. Yeah, uh, my book, uh, "The Pricing of Progress," uh, of Harvard University Press, came out uh, two years ago. It's a book on the history of American capitalism through the vision of how Americans measured things, and I try to show how Americans uh, began to measure everything uh, in units of money. And I argue that there are good things about this, but there are also bad things about this. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was listening a bit to like interviews about how like the metrics that mm -hmm. we use today. Exactly. You know, that's, that's interesting. It's basically the origin story of like the GDPs and all these yeah, kind yeah. of statistics we were bandying about before yeah. and it's on amazon oh yeah Kindle. Amazon. what's yeah, it called thing? again uh, the pricing of progress uh economic indicators and the capitalization of american life cool 
Not okay. a not for like a vacation in uh, Hawaii. No, nope, although I did it, try to make it, you know, accessible to like a wider public. So you know, the book was like in Barnes and Noble and the economics. Uh, I would love to read it. Shelf, but I, but I, I'm sure any any listeners who are interested in economics. Will yeah, got this far in the episode. Definitely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, def- yeah, that's true. Anybody who's listening <laughs> yeah. to this probably has an interest in the book. <laughs> okay, very cool. Thank you so much. Thank Before you. we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. So check them out at JewishJournal.com and. And Avucheva, uh, guys, so IsraelNationalNews.com. We're on their Facebook page, on their website. Check them out. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's new, and we need to get to 1,000 subscribers. And hit the bell button. And we accept donations, so please help us out. Go to 2NJB.com slash donate and throw some shekels yes. at us. All of That's them. That's it. Definitely <laughs> one of the nicest socialists we, ne- we ever met. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, For a socialist, you're okay. Many have I called us say. Nazis, and oh, so yeah. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no, no, no! <laughs> I, I, I love uh, you know open debates. It's part of a. That's uh, awesome. <laughs> thank right, you, thank so you so much. Oh no, thank my you. pleasure. Bye, bye, guys.